There are, uh, over the history of the entire world, a couple of days that you could say were uh, bigger, better, more massive and awesome than all of the other monotonous days that we seem to go through in life, right? You could probably look over history, you could find a couple of those, like Mount Vesuvius when it erupted, 70,000 dead in one day, just like that. Days like that, just awesome days that were, uh, you know, that if you looked at a timeline of the whole history of the world, they would just be blots that stood out on the history of time in our world. I think today, the day that we study is another one of those. Um, Not only just because it involves Jesus, which by the way, most of the days would involve Jesus that stand out on the timeline of the world. Um... But just because of what happened there on that day, we call it the triumphal entry. Honestly, though, it's not really all that triumphal. <laughs> Certainly doesn't end at the end of the week with triumph until the resurrection, but nobody would ever have saw that coming. Um, we'll see how Jesus sees through the triumph of the day and doesn't let it sway him at all. Um, but... Before we look at the day, let's go from the day, just sort of back in time a little bit, just to see everything that's happened that leads up to this wonderful day, okay? Just a little bit of history. It's about a few days before the Sunday that he arrives for the triumphal entry that Jesus is out in Jericho. He heals a blind man there, and the Bible says that he resolutely set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. It's meaning this. He knows what awaits. He knows what awaits. He's told his disciples already in prediction form that I'm going to Jerusalem to die. So they already know. They already know what's coming. We can rewind a little bit even further to four months before this day. That's when Jesus is in the area of Jerusalem And he raises, as Jerry said, Lazarus from the dead. That's four months away from this day, before this day. Four months, and the buzz of Lazarus has gone all over the map. Lazarus lives just a couple miles from Jerusalem, over the Mount of Olives on the other side in Bethany, just a little tiny town, little village. That's where he lives. So Jerusalem is full of all the Lazarus news. All of that excitement is reignited with Passover week, where everybody from the countryside comes to town to celebrate Passover, and everybody's wondering, ooh, I wonder if Jesus is going to be there this year. I hope he does. So the buzz about Lazarus is still heavy, and even more so now that it's Passover. All right, let's rewind a little bit more. Let's rewind a year previous Passover. Was Jesus in Jerusalem? No, he wasn't there for that one. Do you know where he was? Clear out in the wilderness. What was he doing? Nothing. Just feeding 15,000 people that were crazy enough to follow him out into the middle of nowhere. We call it the feeding of the 5,000 Jesus didn't make it down to Jerusalem. He was clear up in the north by the Sea of Galilee. 
And there were 15,000 probably plus people that didn't go down to Jerusalem like they normally would have because they followed him into the mountains and the wilderness. The crowd had come out to Jesus on the lake. He got out in a boat. He started to preach. And he said, guys, we need to go. We need to get some rest. The crowds are pressing in. I'm, I'm tired. So they start to row the boat away from the crowd that's on the shore. And I tell you what, that crowd watches them row away. And they see that Jesus is not going to the opposite side of the lake. He hugs the northern side of the lake. So the crowd that's on the shore watching him follows him around the north side of the lake and probably follows him for seven miles. They ford the Jordan River and they meet Jesus seven miles on the other side of the north side of the lake to hear him again. And they follow him up into the wilderness mountains and they followed him so much that they forgot that they're hungry. And so that's when Jesus says, hey, this is a remote place. Where are we going to feed them? And then provides the miracle of the 15, the 5,000, the 15,000. Now the bigwigs back in Jerusalem hear about this. And they say, what are we going to do about this? If he keeps taking people away from our holiday and our festival, and this year he had 15,000 people up in the middle of nowhere No planning, no pre-planning, no strategy, no planning whatsoever. And he drug 15,000 people away from us up there into the north. And that's only his first year. What's he going to do next year, which is the year that we are studying? So everybody is saying, what do you think? Is he going to come? If he comes, he dies. But there's just something about him that he never backs down from anything like that. He's just, got, he's just got an inner moral authority that he just gets stuff done and nobody can touch him and nobody can do anything. But still, the Pharisees are powerful and they've said, hey, if anybody sees Jesus, you come right to us so we can arrest him. Okay, so now the day. I'll be reading from John chapter 11. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, Lazarus's sister, and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done, Lazarus. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting in the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. They have a gripe there. If things get out of hand in any province of the Roman Empire, then the Roman authorities are going to come in and put a kibosh to that. They don't want that. Nobody wants that. One of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up and said something totally ironic. You know nothing at all. You do not realize it's better for you that one man die for the people and for the whole nation perish. Kind of neat, huh? Did you hear what you just said, Caiaphas? No, he didn't, because the next verse says, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. 
And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. That's the area down south near Jerusalem. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village named Ephraim where he stayed with his disciples. That was four months ago. So for those four months, Jesus is out of sight because it all has to happen this week to fulfill all of the amazing prophecies that Moses had written 1,400 years before this very day and this very week. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem as they always did for the ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Is he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. All right, there you have it. I know it's just printed words on a page, and it's hard to get the the whole entire story, but that's our purpose today is to get this story in our bones. The buzz about Passover this year is not about lambs. It's not about good food. It's not about being in wonderful Jerusalem and seeing the buildings and being around everything that's, that's going on. This year, it's this. Is Jesus going to be here? But it's not... Because I want to see Jesus, it's because I want to be in on all the action and see the fireworks. And so in that, in their smug, dysfunctional way, wanting to be a part of all the news and wanting to be in and on all of the action, they try to manufacture it on their own. And Jesus sees right through it. Meanwhile, John says, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there. He's come to Bethany at Lazarus' home. Not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom they had, he had raised from the dead. People from the countryside have heard about Lazarus. They want to see this. They want to go right up to him and ask him, is it true? So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. I don't know how much sense that really makes. (laughs) For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. All the attention is on Jesus. All of it. And the religious leaders know it. And they have concluded, we got to do something. We've got to do something. So them in their power, try to wield that power and say, you must tell us if he's here because it's the only thing on their mind as well. This ain't going to be no regular Passover. Not even close. I wonder if parts of them are saying, I hope he's here so he doesn't take people away from us. I hope he's here so we can finally maybe get our hands on him. But they do fear him. All right, so he's with Lazarus on the other side of the mountain. 
And you know the story about the donkey. He sends them into the, into the next village to get a donkey. And that's what he's going to ride over the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley, and then enter Jerusalem that day. So he gets on this donkey, and word gets out. He's coming. Somebody who saw him on the other side of the Mountain of Olives has run into Jerusalem and started to spread the word that he's on his way for the day. And this is where the story gets interesting. When he came, this is Jesus, near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. So he's summited the mount. He's headed down into the valley that leads up to Jerusalem on the other side. When he came near that place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, this whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. For all the miracles they had seen. So here's what happens. Word gets out in Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to the city. So the crowd that would normally stay in the temple courts for the festival, the celebration, the eating, and what have you, exits in mass the city itself, takes the horrible, rigorous walk through the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives to meet him there. I have walked there. It is a long walk. It is a tiresome walk. When you walk down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, it's the type of walk where your toes get jammed into the front of your shoes and they hurt and you don't want to take another step. And that's going downhill the easy way. This crowd has come out, went into the Kidron Valley, and they are on their way up and all the way up on the Mount of Olives to meet Jesus. One man from clear up north in the sticks. This is no normal Passover. If not in Jerusalem, they're not in spending money. If not in Jerusalem, they're not in there doing what they should be doing. And that's celebrating what God would want them to celebrate and spending money just like every other Passover. But they have left for the one man. And what do they say? As Jesus crests that mountain, the war hoop goes out, and they start to scream, yell, and praise God. What do they say? They say, Hosanna. You know what that means? It means save. Basically, just means save. Now, are they really asking for Jesus to save their soul like you and I would know? The next thing they say is, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So they're trying to make him king there, put a crown on his head. They're asking him to save them from their dysfunctional life. They're asking, them, asking him to save them and go up against the authority of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which they're tired of. They're asking him to save them from all the political junk that's going on, be it Rome or the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're basically just saying, God, change my life and make it better. Okay? Put yourself in the saddle on the donkey, and you're Jesus. And you have a whole crowd of people that have come out to see you. 
what would be your response? Hey, this is pretty good. Everybody likes me. I want everybody to like me. Everybody thinks I'm hot stuff. I'm front page of the newspapers. I'm, I'm everything right now. But yet you have a throng of people saying, Jesus, please help change our life circumstances. We don't like poverty anymore. We don't like Rome anymore. We don't like the Pharisees and Sadducees. We, we just don't like, we don't like, we don't like. We want, we want, we want. Save, save. But it's all couched in celebratory honor. You're the king, Jesus. Save. Change our circumstances. We're so mad at the Pharisees and Sadducees, so tired of them. Ruffle their feathers. Stir up the storm. Give us something different. We are so bored with life. Make it happy and fun. You're the king. You raised Lazarus from the dead. You fed the 5,000. You can do anything, Jesus. Save us from the lives that we don't like. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke all these people. Rebuke your disciples. We're going to get in trouble here. Jesus says, I tell you, if they were quiet, the stones themselves would cry out. That's a neat thing to say to them. Moral authority, right? The Pharisees and Sadducees can do nothing with that throng there. If they were trying to do something, the throng would attack them then. So it's a perfect scenario leading up to the perfect day on Friday and the even more perfect day on Sunday. Jesus sees right through it, though. You can go back a couple of years uh, in Jesus' teaching ministry, and he did something weird as well when all the crowds were coming out. The Bible tells us that he began to speak to them in parables. Sometimes I think we make a mistake when we see parables as a teaching aid that Jesus used. They really aren't that. They are that to you and me because in the scriptures, we get to see how he defined them and explained them and what they meant. But when Jesus spoke to those crowds in parables and changed things up that way, he was specifically trying to shroud his message from them because... They were just coming out to see the show. It's exactly what they're doing here. Jesus is not going to give the throng what they want. In fact, as Jerry mentioned, by the end of the week, the crowd will turn on him because he didn't save, because he wasn't the king that they wanted him to be, and because he didn't bless their life. And he thought, they thought, how could he come in the name of the Lord? When he just died. So Jesus knows all of this. And this is why we see this. As he approached Jerusalem, he's still on the donkey, and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now... 
It is hidden and shrouded from your eyes. The days will come, Jerusalem, when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. What do you mean that you're recognizing it? They called him the king. The palm branches are out. We've lined the road in a huge, massive parade. We've come out to meet you. How do we not recognize? You didn't recognize because you put Jesus and God in your own box. How often do we do this? Oh, maybe almost every Sunday, we gather together as a crowd to celebrate, to worship, to learn, to go through all of the motions but to have ears to hear and to consider how carefully we listen to Jesus himself, how well do we do that? We are one of this crowd all too often. I know that I am. Here's another example of the way Jesus saw things. He goes into Jerusalem that day through the valley into the city and the Bible just says he went in and he looked around. And then he went back out over the Mount of Olives to stay with Lazarus and the family again in Bethany. The next day, he gets up and he comes into Jerusalem like he will do and like everybody does every day of this week-long festival. And on the way in, he went to a fig tree, tried to pull some figs off of it and eat a little breakfast. There was nothing there. You know what he did, don't you? He said, may you never produce fruit again. And on into Jerusalem they went. It was pretty an uneventful day that day, the second day in Jerusalem. It wasn't quite as big as the triumphal entry. Jesus just walks in by himself this day. There's no crowd welcoming in. But they're probably looking forward to him coming in. And he goes in and he ransacks the place. Turns over the money table, the changers, all of the money racketeering for the festival He just turns it over and makes a, a mess and a chaos out of the whole temple courts. So he's not giving the Pharisees and Sadducees what they want. And then on the way home, or excuse me, on the next day when they come back into Jerusalem, they see that that fig tree has completely withered. Completely withered. It didn't hold any figs. And we always get on Jesus about this because, gee whiz, Jesus, did you wake up on the wrong side of the bed that morning? Why would you take out your frustrations on an innocent tree? The tree wasn't innocent. The tree had leaves. And it actually had leaves on it previous to when normal fig trees would get leaves. And with leaves on a fig tree come figs. But he went to the fully leaved fig tree and there was no figs. It was a liar. It had the external part covered, but it didn't produce any fruit. The tree was fake. And so was the throng that day. And so Jesus knew that in a few days they would turn on him. But you know what? 
He died for them anyway. And you, when you come in church and you've got all your best clothes on and you put on your Sunday smile, eat a donut, a cup of coffee, and talk with all your Christian friends, we cover the outside pretty well. But do we produce the fruit? Are we true and true all the way through? It's a scary thing to think that Jesus can see right through us. He can. It's a very scary thing. It's also a very scary thing that the women and the children within their walls will all be dashed to the ground, that what one stone will not be left on another of our fair city on which we invest and bank on everything. The enemies will come. They will encircle us and hem us in so that we will all starve. And if you know the history of the day when that happens, women begin to boil their children to eat them. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. It's kind of just a pesky, pesky, pesky problem that Jesus and God have. They try and they try and they try. They give life, they create life, but the life doesn't recognize them. He that was in with God at the beginning, everything was created through him, but then when he went and came to the created, they did not recognize him at all. And then when they even try to manufacture all of this and they make a parade for him, he still sees that they don't recognize him for who he truly is. This day, as great as it is, illustrates the horrible problem that humanity has. And you and I are one of those. Our horrible problem is, is that we don't know God. That we don't know God's will for us. That we don't have an understanding of who he really is. And probably that's because we don't know love. And he is love. It is probably also because we're very unfamiliar with the spiritual side of ourselves. And he is spirit. We don't know God the way we should. Thankfully, Gratefully, he is full of mercy and full of grace, and he'll die for us anyway. Amen? God, we give you the praise for the very fact that you die for people who do not recognize you. While we are still sinners, that's when, in your love, you choose to die. When we don't deserve, you still die. When all the applaud is fake, you still die. When many of our thoughts and intentions of our hearts are full of agenda and self-centered ambition, you still die. Lord, something, somebody has to jar us loose of ourselves And you're so full of love and mercy that you did it by dying. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for the many times we turn against you.
Lord, we ask you forgiveness for the many times where our exterior shows something that is not on the interior. God, we are just grateful that you do the things the way that you do them. And we ask this day that you would help us learn how to do the same, to learn how to love, to learn how to lay our lives down, to learn how to forgive, to learn how to be more like your son. And in his triumphal name we pray, amen.